Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Cultural Conversations. Today in the studio, you've got me, Haley Jamison. And myself, Will Johansson. And we'll be looking at an interview with Dr. James Moore, who is currently doing his MPA and teaching at the Harvard Kennedy School. During his interview, Dr. Moore discussed the challenges and memories he made as his young family moved to China. He also discussed his experience becoming a young CEO of a very large international company, as well as exciting global management strategies that he has developed throughout his international career. Please stay tuned for a fantastic episode. Like we mentioned earlier, Dr. Moore is currently both studying at Harvard and teaching as well, doing his MPA at the Kennedy School. Now, to hear a bit more on his background, here is Dr. Moore himself. I was born in California, kind of grew up in Missouri, foothills of Missouri, and then later uh, moved to Utah around high school age, middle school, high school age, uh, graduated from American Fork High School, and uh, applied to serve a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I was called to the Taiwan Taichung Mission, and uh, upon returning, I knew I wanted something to do with China. And so um, I decided to major in Chinese and did a minor in business at BYU. I ended up not finishing the minor because I took a job that uh, needed me out there faster than I can finish the rest of the classes. But uh, so I'm familiar with the Marriott School and what goes on there. It's a great school um, for those students that are at the Marriott School. It's a great opportunity to learn and improve their skills. Anyway, um, so then I took... Uh, well, so I knew I wanted to do something with China. I was studying Chinese and knew business was a good opportunity and way to get out there. And so I was trying to find a company upon graduation that uh, had something to do with China and, uh, or had operations in China. And um, my wife, who I met at BYU, uh, which was the best thing that happened to me at BYU, um, she also had gone to China to teach English and had audited some Chinese classes and just really had this thing for China actually ever since she was little too. And so we both kind of clicked that way and, uh, both wanted to get out there. And so we were looking for opportunities to do that. And I got interviewed by a company that had a lot of operations out in China, had like 3000 stores out in China at the time, retail stores. And I was picked up by them and worked for them for a little while in LA. And then eventually they sent me out to Beijing where I became their branch manager of 30 of their franchise retail stores. And then later they had me uh, transferred to Taiwan where I was the sales and marketing manager for 200 plus stores. And that was a really good experience. And then eventually things were kind of shifting. And so I um, not necessarily at the company, but I could just tell it was maybe time for a switch and a company had approached me in a different industry, in a consulting industry for uh, quality assurance services. So they worked with companies like Ikea, Walmart, Bed Bath & Beyond, um, Adidas, Nike, H&M, any company that had a filled textile product. So two fabrics with a filling inside. So that could be bedding or that could be outerwear. And um, they were looking for a business development manager in China and I wanted to get back to China. And so I made the switch, went back to China and there helped them set up several wholly foreign owned enterprises and um, 
kind of became an expert in doing that, uh, which eventually led to me pursuing a PhD in entrepreneurship at Zhejiang University. And uh, after finishing that, uh, a unique opportunity came up to work for the Chinese government. They typically don't hire foreigners uh, because uh, to work for the Chinese government, you usually have to be a, a citizen of China and or a member of the Communist Party. Not necessarily, but that's a plus uh, of which I am neither. Um, but having served the Chinese people as a missionary and loving uh, Chinese people and culture and language um, and the trade war had just broken out and uh, it's a big it was a hard decision whether my wife and I wanted to do this because it seemed kind of risky, but we prayed about it and uh, we didn't necessarily feel a yes or a no, but we felt good about it. And so we, we went forward to see if we could be a friend to China, as President Nelson would say, um, the, the chairman of the board at BYU. Um, uh, uh, and uh, so we, we took the plunge and it was a really good experience really glad we did it learned a lot of things we couldn't learn in any other way and um uh, although it was awkward and challenging at times with the political situation that was going on uh, we still felt like we were able to make a difference and not just help um, our home country which is america that we we love that we're patriotic very patriotic about um but also we were able to help the Chinese in meaningful ways and uh, make good connections because if we want this world to be peaceful and uh, continue to progress, we need to find a way to get along, especially the two biggest powers and uh, it's complicated right now. So uh, we were grateful for the experience. We think it was valuable and hoping to use those skills to help um, the world become a better place later on. Maybe I'll stop there and let you ask any other questions that you might have. So you kind of went through your career path really fast. I want to just like take a pause and walk through it to make sure I understand all the steps. Right now you're getting your MP at Harvard. Mm -hmm. Right before this, you were working for the Chinese government. Correct. Okay. And we'll ask more specifically about that. Before that, you're getting your PhD. Yes. Where at? Um, Zhejiang University, China has okay. not nine main schools. I mean, they have got thousands like we do, right? But there's nine main ones that are like their Ivy Leagues. And there's probably five top ones um, similar to our MIT, Harvard, Yale, Stanford. They have their top five. And uh, the number one and number two are always the same. Beijing University or Beida, Peking University, as well as uh, Tsinghua, Tsinghua University. And then the number three spots heavily competed for typically by three schools, Zhejiang University, Fudan University in Shanghai, and Jiaotong University in Shanghai. Those, those three kind of compete and they're actually right next to each other. Shanghai and Hangzhou are very close to each other. So during that interview, Dr. Moore talked about his experience doing graduate school in China. He mentioned that there were nine major colleges um, that were competing for top spots. And that got us really interested. So we did a bit more research into what higher education looked like in China. Um, by May 2017, there were actually over 2,900 colleges and universities in China with over 20 million students enrolled. Many of those schools rank in the top 500 of global universities published by a recent study. 
um, and they have two universities currently in the top 25. So it is a major center for those who are interested in doing graduate programs abroad. Yeah, listeners, and if you're interested in graduate school abroad, you know, the ins and outs, how to apply, different programs throughout the world, stay tuned because in two weeks we'll be publishing an episode on just that. Okay. And so then before your PhD, which role were you in? The Um, textiles one? Yeah, so I worked for a company called IDFL, Laboratory and Institute, and they're the ones that uh, consult and do quality assurance for a lot of the major brands in the world for field textiles. And I was their uh, CEO of IDFL Asia. Now, as Sam and Meg were interviewing Dr. Moore, it became very obvious that his family was important to him, and he shared a really fantastic story about his first week in China with his young family. So I'm, we now have two kids, we have a stroller, and we're waiting for a bus. And we're trying to get in this bus um, for like an hour-long bus ride back to our home. I think it was after church or something. And the kids aren't, it's hot outside, they're having a hard time, and so and there's this big long line to get in this bus and the doors open up and everyone just floods into the bus. And it was like, as if we weren't even there, like no one, no one helped us on or got us on or something like that. And, you know, I just say, Oh my gosh, how rude. That's your first thought. And, um, and, uh, you know, once again, you'd be easy to be negative. Like, Hey, in America, we would get in a line, people would get on one, one by one, you know, or something like that. It'd be easy to, to judge at that point. Um, and I was judging. And then the, the, the bus came up and uh, the doors opened again. And this time I was closer in the line. I think this was the second time. I can't quite remember because it's been so long. But people, I just remember people flooding around me again when those doors opened up and beating me on the bus because I had this big stroller. And I just let, what in the world is going on here? Upset at this point. And then, so now this next time, the, this and, and these buses come like every 15, 30 minutes, right? So you're waiting a long time every time this happens. And so um, when the bus comes up this time, I'm like, okay, you know what? I played football. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my football shoulder out and I'm going to, I don't care who's in the way I'm getting on this bus. And so the doors open up and it's like me and I can see like this kind of older lady next to me, but I, I didn't care at this point. I'm, I'm like past feeling. <laughs> and so uh, kind of like bumpers, I get on there, you know, and she, and she kind of, you know, gets kind of bumped back and she didn't quite make it on. And, and we like pile on and squeeze into this bus and like the doors closed behind us, like, like closing on us. It's so tight in that bus. And so we barely make it on and the doors close. And, and now I'm feeling bad, right? Cause I just kind of, kind of knocked that lady, not knocked her over, but you know, I used my shoulder to get on. <laughs> and, uh, and as I looked back, at the lady, I was expecting her. I was trying to say, oh, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, kind of thing. No, no hard feelings. <laughs> and uh, as I looked back at her, she had this. She was. She had this look on her face as if nothing happened, as if everything was completely normal and nothing was wrong. And then I realized, oh my gosh, she expected me to fight to get on that bus, and and she wasn't put out about it everybody was fighting me on the bus. It's nothing personal. <laughs> and, uh, and then I realized that helped me while I was in China because China is a little different from, from places like Hong Kong or, or Taiwan or Shanghai or Beijing, where um, these are, you know, first tier cities. I was in a, in a second tier city. And, um, and so there were a lot of migrant workers there, um, you know, you guys have probably never even heard of Hangzhou, but there's 10 million people. It's like bigger than New York City. Um, 
but people haven't even heard of it. Uh, but there, anyway, the point is there's just lots and lots of people and there's a limited amount of resources. And so there's a lot of people competing for this limited amount of resources. And that just kind of creates this survival mentality. And so I realized, you know, it's nothing personal. They're just, that's just, they're just trying to compete for the resources that are there. Um, and uh, they're not necessarily mad if I get it before them. They're just, they just know everybody's trying to, trying to get what they need. And so when I realized that, it kind of helped explain a lot of things that I was seeing there going on that seemed maybe rude to me at first, but then I realized they're actually really kind and nice, even though maybe they just butted in front of me in line or something else happened that I didn't necessarily appreciate. They were, but they, there was nothing personal by it. And they were, they were just doing the best that they knew how. And when I kind of realized that and realized where they were coming from, um, then I, you know, I had more compassion and uh, and more patience and uh, that kind of helped me adjust in a lot of ways and not be so stressed out okay can you first tell us about your initial transition to did you move abroad with your first international role or were you traveling back and forth moved abroad so um once my you know this is interesting about timing I wanted to go to China right away, right after, but um, ended up not being able to go uh, because the company kind of kept me there in Los Angeles for a little while. And, uh, but I was kind of being impatient, really wanted to go. I even had a, a, a sign on my wall, a poster. You've heard of the acronym KISS, Keep It Simple Steve. I like Steve, stupid's kind of <laughs> weird, but Keep It Simple Steve. Um, so I, so I had this poster on my wall that said, it's China, stupid, <laughs> but I used the word stupid. Anyway, so I had that on my wall to keep me focused to not, you know, lose sight where I wanted to go. And so I was always wanting to get there and probably could have enjoyed the journey a little bit more. Um, but anyway, I really wanted to get there. And uh, but there were other things at play that maybe I hadn't considered. Like, for example, my wife, she was studying for the bar and uh, why she was pregnant. And, uh, you know, for us to have jumped right then at that time. Although, yeah, we could have, it probably wouldn't have been best for the family. And so I guess the reason why I say that is, you know, you want to be ambitious and you want to, you want to have goals and you want to accomplish them, but you also need to be patient. And if you're religious, wait on the Lord or wait on God. I, for some people that might listen to this may not be religious. And if they're not, I would encourage them to, to get to know him because, oh man, I cannot tell you the the insight and the unfair advantage I've had in life by getting my advice um, and direction from him when it's needed. Anyway, so um, I wasn't as patient probably as I should have been in, in getting to China, but when the timing was right, the company said, hey, do you want to go to China? And right when my wife had had our first child and she had just passed the bar, then the company said that to us. And uh, I realized, you know, um, I'm so glad I wasn't overzealous in getting us there and uh, maybe leaving that company to get to get there or other avenues I could have pursued because it wasn't happening right then um, because it was important for my wife to finish the bar for for herself and um, and it was important for us to do what we were doing there at the time and so uh, it's just important to I think to be patient um, and uh, try to listen to him. I think if I was listening a little better, I might've been a little more patient. But anyway, 
luckily he has patience with me and things worked out when they were supposed to. So, um, but anyway, so yeah, we eventually got out there and uh, we moved the whole family out there, lived out there and it was a, a great experience, but it was difficult in the beginning because we had been used to America all our lives, other than maybe where we served our missions. My wife served her mission in Russia. I served my mission in Taiwan, but China was different than Taiwan. When we first got there, it's, uh, you know, it's much easier for the person who has the job there, whether that's the, the wife or the husband, um, especially if you go out there as a family like I did. So it's challenging, um, my, especially for the spouse that's not working, because so I, my wife just had our first child. She had just passed the bar, wasn't necessarily working for anybody. Uh, wanted to focus on our first child, and I had um, a job that was challenging, and so I was always engaged. I was always learning new things. I was always, um, you know, doing something that was captivating and to some degree. And but my wife, uh, being at home, you know, she learned Russian, and she didn't really speak that much Chinese. Uh, she she taught English in China, but she hadn't necessarily like really studied it. And so she didn't really know the language very well. And, uh, would, and so she kind of felt alone sometimes, I think, um, just not ha having immediate group of friends. Uh, but the, the wards and branches for the, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are always extremely welcoming. And that was always helpful wherever we were. But I think it was challenging for her to adjust um, to raising our family in a an environment that she wasn't necessarily familiar with, um, but it brought tons of blessings. So was it comfortable? No, but was it a huge blessing to our family? Yes, because in Asia, they have so many ingrained um, healthy habits of the way that they live. And uh, my wife just decided to get outside herself and start talking to people in her broken Chinese and start trying to make friends as best as she could and uh, and tried to just be as gregarious as she could. And she was able to make lots of friends and learn how they cook food there. Although it was different maybe from the way we do it in America, she got to learn how they do it and realized, wow, they eat really healthy and they actually have a method to their madness. And, um, you know, and she started picking up on a lot of these ways that they would live their life there and uh, ended up really making our family a lot more healthy. We ate a lot more vegetables and um, uh, we tried a lot of interesting foods uh, and it was just fantastic. We would just adopt a lot of their cultural norms. We just kind of embraced it. Sometimes people, when they go to another country, they can um, look down upon the country, particularly if you're coming from America, because America is the number one economy in the world. Supposedly, this is the place with the most opportunity. And so, you know, when they go to other countries, maybe they, they uh, sometimes they can go over with a, with a chip on their shoulder or they can go over thinking, um, you know, the way we do it in our country is the best way or, or whatever. Uh, or they see, you know, someone spitting on the street or doing something that they think is uh, not polite or something like that. And they can look down upon that culture, people, or find things to, that annoy them about it. And then they can start fixating on these negative aspects, uh, which is obviously a, a horrible way to go um, because every culture has their, their good aspects and these nuggets of wisdom. And uh, 
things that will really improve your life if you'll just open your mind and say, hey, I want to completely embrace this culture and really fit in with these people because I have something to learn from them. Um, and so we, we tried our best to kind of take that attitude um, and, and to not be negative. And uh, it really helped us have a, a really good outlook. One fun thing that I like to ask people is, what was your first week like? Like getting down to the nitty gritty. You got on this long plane ride with your baby and your wife. Like what was the whole process of finding your housing, starting off at work? Yeah, good question. So depending on where you, what kind of a company you get hired to work for when you go out there, things will be different for you. I was going out there with a larger company. And so uh, they had a lot of HR staff that when I got there were able to help uh, get us into a hotel, then help get us breakfast and took us to the visa place to get our visas and our health checks and everything else that you have to go through to get a resident permit in China and a work permit. And so um, for us, a lot of those things would maybe cause more people a headache. We're kind of taking care for us, which I'm really grateful for having never been to China previously. Um, so uh, yeah, so it, it wasn't extremely difficult for us, but the first week is just really eye-opening because you're in a new place that you've never been before. And so you're just soaking it all in and it can be a little overwhelming, but in the end, you're just happy you're there because you know all the work that, that went into just getting you there. So the first week is, uh, it's, it's good, it's great. Speaking like logistically, like it was, so basically because it was a larger company, they able to basically take care of all of like the visas, the housing, the, all that for you basically? Yeah, that they, they helped set us up with a lot of different things, but I've, now I've also worked for a smaller company in China where, you know, um, we still have people that will, that will try to help introduce you to various places that are good. But typically when you get someplace, there will be an agent that, uh, you know, has a list of houses or available housing that's close to where you work or has the different, you know, amenities that you might need. And, uh, and then you just go and you'll tour them and try to find the one you want and then pick that one. And typically if you've got a family, you're looking for things that are close to schools, um, have little play places or parks, um, close to hospitals, grocery shopping, those kinds of things. Um, but if you're single and going over there, maybe you're wanting to be closer to a mall or the subway station so you can do more traveling, things like that. So it kind of depends on your situation. But uh, for the most part, in China at least, uh, the agents could take care of everything for you. And then you pay them a small fee to, for helping you find the place and everything's good. That's awesome. That's so convenient. <laughs> I yeah. would become a nightmare otherwise, I think. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not too bad. <laughs> so you were in China for how long in total? Um, so, um, so my mission in Taiwan was two years plus uh, eight plus years in China. Uh, so total almost 11 years in Asia now. So what was it like for you? And I guess what cultural differences did you notice between Taiwan and China? So um, Taiwan and China uh, have, um, so I mean, there's a, there's a lot of similarities in terms of um, 
uh, I guess just being out there in Asia um, and also having uh, just Chinese culture in general uh, because Taiwan was created from people fleeing from China to Taiwan, right? So, so they brought a lot of that over there. But where Taiwan has some unique aspects is uh, where China, after the Cultural Revolution, they kind of went to simplified characters. Um, China, Taiwan maintained the traditional characters and a lot more of Chinese traditions in some ways. And so they had a lot more Buddhist temples and Taoist temples and, uh, you know, dragon boat festival rituals. And, and it, at least it seemed that way. They had a lot more of those festivities going on. Um, and not that, but China under the, uh, under Xi Jinping's leadership has started instituting and focusing more on those. But Taiwan had a lot of that, at least when I was there as a missionary. But something else that makes Taiwan unique um, is uh, it had, it was occupied by Japan for a little while. And so uh, it also has some of the older generation actually speak Japanese. Uh, and so it has this interesting mix of, of Chinese um, and some Japanese influence. And then it's, it, you know, it was kind of a booming manufacturing up and coming manufacturing area at one point. And so I had a lot of international trade going through there. And so you got a really, a lot of mix of some different cultures there. You can find almost any kind of food you want there in Taiwan. So it's, it's a little bit, um, it's not quite of a melt, as much of a melting pot as Hong Kong was maybe, um, but, but still it's kind of got that, a, a unique feel like that. Um, so I don't know if that kind of paints a picture for you, but uh, there, is, there is a little bit of a different feel. Very interesting. So from what I understand, um, you were, were in China, but you also were able to oversee um, operations in China, Vietnam, Japan, and Korea. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you, as far as like leadership style goes, how were you able to manage the differences between those, those cultures? Um, so in a lot of it was working with clients in, in these various areas. Um, some staff worked in some of those areas, but for the most part, uh, I think um, when you're doing cross-cultural business um, and you're crossing borders like that, uh, sometimes I think people can make it too complicated. I think it is important to learn etiquette in that country and do as much research as you can on on what's acceptable and what's appropriate and just it, like we talked about immersing yourself in a culture i think that's always just basic uh, uh good basic business practice or good common sense but in the end i i would even simplify it even further to say that i think you just need to be like jesus <laughs> i know that's a that's a a weird thing to say in business but i think he was he was the ultimate example of how to lead an organization or how to lead a, a group of people or how to work with a customer. Um, if you go in there truly wanting to help someone, and I mean, because that's, for example, when you're entering a new market, you're just expanding your business, you're, do, you're selling your services, your product to, to these new customers. And basically what sales is, is you, 
you, you're talking to a potential client or customer and you're trying to find out what their needs are, what their problems are. And then what you do is you try to then see what you have and try to connect the dots and see if it can help them. If it can't help them, then you walk away. But if it can help them, then you can show them how it, how it can help. And so um, I think, uh, you know, when you're working in these new cultures and uh, if you were to try to be like Jesus, I think you'd be just fine. Uh, and, and like we talked about in the beginning, having a, a genuine love in your heart for people. Um, but sometimes people say, well, that's kind of naive. Um, but they, what they don't realize is uh, like respect or love and trust are two different things. You know, trust is earned, but respect and love is kind of given because we're all children of God. And so um, uh, you could, I feel like you can, you can go in there and actually just say, you know, Heavenly Father, how can I help these people? How can I help this person? Let me know. And, and then try to do your best to do that. So I think if you go in with that kind of attitude, you just can't lose. Yeah, that's awesome advice. And honestly, it kind of does kind of speak to the, the thought that people are, are people, no matter where they are. And they just respond to certain things, no matter who they are, like respect and love. Like they're, they're going to respond positively to those yep. types of uh, actions. And I think a big part of love is listening. And so, like I, like I said, the question was, how can I help? And, and so you're, you're trying to, I mean, you probably don't know how you can help them or you think you know how you can help them, but usually you don't know until they tell you or until you can pull it out of them. And so same thing with working with staff or, or clients, you know, that you just ha have, have that question, how can I help them? And so you try to find out how you can do that and by listening and hearing things and then, you know, trying to take your a respectful approach from that angle uh, can be successful sometimes. Yeah, and going in with the right mindset. I do really like the way you pointed out, like the love and the trust and the difference between the two, though. I think yep. that can be especially important in cultures who do need a lot of time to build the trust, but you can love before that. Yep. So this might be a broad question, but you can think for a minute if you want. But what do you think is the most important you think? I'll start this over. What is the most important thing you learned from being a CEO internationally? Good question. Um, oh, so many things, but, uh, and I, I still have a lot to learn. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this answer to this question for myself in 20, 30 years again. But um, I guess you need to, people are first and foremost, you need to, you need to find the right people. You need to have the right people on your team. And, um, you know, kind of, I guess, to use Jim Collins analogy, you gotta get the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus. And uh, the right people, meaning those that match the type of culture that you want in your organization, um, the values that you feel like you represent and the things that you wanna deliver to your clients. If you have staff that don't match those values, you need to, you need to respectfully and help them find another opportunity because um, the culture of your organization will reflect your brand to the customer. And um, so your people 
are the culture and the culture is the brand and the brand is what people are buying. And so you, you need to make sure that you have the right people on the bus. Um, and then um, you got to have the right people in the right seats um, because uh, sometimes it's the right person on the bus, but you just don't have them in the right seat. And uh, taking time to figure that out is, is worthwhile. And then once you've got the right people on the bus, the right people in the right seats, um, then making sure you have the right priorities um, or you know where you want to go, you know what the destination is, that's critical. And then you just execute on those priorities. Um, and you don't want to complicate things. You don't want to make your, your business plan 100 pages. Um, you want to keep things simple enough that everyone can wrap their minds around. And uh, so, yeah, I just say people, priorities, and then just execute on those. Um, but I'd also say um, that, you know, to make sure that you have the right people and to make sure that they're in the right seat and to make sure that you are working on the right priorities, you need to spend time with those you lead. So you don't want to do this remote control management where you're operating everything through email. That's not a good way to run or lead a business. Um, so something I tried to institute while I was there was a weekly one-on-one -on -one with the managers that reported to me. Eventually, um, after setting up some of those wholly foreign-owned enterprises, the organization grew quite large from under 10 to over 70. And so I wasn't able to, you know, give attention to every single employee at that point. And so I had about five or six managers that would report to me. And what I'd try to do is meet with each one of them one-on-one -on -one each week and then invite them to meet with their staff one-on-one -on -one each week. And, um, and the purpose of those meetings was not to babysit, but rather to brainstorm, to talk about what are, what are our goals as an organization and where, what, what is their role in that goal or priority that we're focusing on. And then asking what their ideas are and are we on the right track? Are we going in the right direction? And we brainstorm on how we can make that better. Um, I would see myself more as a support to them to help remove roadblocks so they could get done what they wanted. Because if I had to babysit them, then they weren't the right person to be on the bus. Um, uh, so, but they needed to come to me with their ideas and what they wanted to do. Um, because if they, if they didn't have anything to bring to that meeting, then we would turn it into a performance review. Um, say, okay, well, let's talk about how you could improve that <laughs> because this, this, this meeting isn't to waste anybody's time. We want to, we want to get something done and you need to think about what you're doing. You're a leader and you've got to get things done. And then they would try, I would try to mimic that with them so they could then do it with their people. Um, once again, just spending time with them and, and trying to work things out together, kind of consensus leadership um, and making sure we're all on the same page and then try to be a support for them. Um, because you'll find out that the higher you go in an organization, you have to get better and better at getting things done through other people because there's no time for you to be the technician anymore. You, 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 can't, you can't do the nitty gritty uh, or do their jobs. They have to do their jobs and you need to get jobs done through them. Yeah, I like 
the emphasis too on the one-on-one -on -one meetings with people. I think those are so valuable. Personal interaction is something that is important. And also the bus analogy is something I've heard before. Is that from a book? Yeah, it's the Jim Collins. Okay. He, met, he mentions it in a couple of his books. I would recommend all of them. They're all incredible. From Good to Great, Built to Last, How the Mighty Fall, Great by Choice. All those books are fantastic ones. I would recommend them. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Cultural Conversations. It was a pleasure for us to interview Dr. Moore. Yeah, Dr. Moore honestly was fantastic. He was a great guest. He's so intelligent, and it was just an honor to have him on the podcast. And having him on the show, it was just very educational. And I really hope that you listeners were able to learn from Dr. Moore. Um, as I was listening, I felt that I got some things out of it that I can really apply to my future and the future that I, that I uh, hope to have involving international business. It was a great episode. And we just want to make you listeners aware that um, our next episode will be all about going to grad school abroad. Dr. Moore talked a little bit about his own experiences doing a PhD in China. So if that's something that interests you, not necessarily in China, but anywhere in the world that's, you know, abroad from your country of origin, stay tuned for that. Yeah, and we did a fair amount of research, actually, for this upcoming podcast. We did surveys to find out what were the most common questions that people had, and we worked really hard to find answers that were accurate. So if you are thinking about doing grad school abroad, if it sounds interesting to you, give it a listen. We, we really think it's going to be educational and help you guys out as you prepare for your future. And as always, thank you for listening and tune in next time.